Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoor Country Talk. Mr. Poole, we have landed the episode that we had a video out a couple days ago talking about and got a, got a couple great guests with us tonight. Well, we've got a couple long-distance guests to yeah. talk about a local topic. You know, I mean, I, That's right. I guess the, the part of the main part of it's local, and then the rest of it's, you know, worldwide. Yeah. So today we have with us Mr. Gene Odom and Mr. Patricia Wash. Mr. Gene was one of the survivors on the Leonard Skinner crash back in 77. So 43 years ago. Yep. Here in Amick County. Here in Amick County over in Gillsburg. Miss Jean, Miss Pat, how are y'all doing? Doing well, thank you. I'm still kicking. <laughs> still fishing. Well, you know, and that's one of the topics we want to talk about today. I know you're an avid fisherman, and with us being an outdoor show, you know, we always love a good fishing or good hunting story. And with, with yeah, your background, I, with everything else, I, I know you've got plenty of entertainment for us today. Well, we'll we'll do we'll do what we can. I'm fixing to get on this. You know, cutting back through the backwoods here, and this road hasn't been paved in 185 years. It's got potholes. It's me that potholes. I might have trouble hearing y'all, and you might have trouble hearing me. But we'll do it. Go ahead. Well, we'll we'll have to work with the audio we got, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Well, Miss Patricia, I know you have a, a kind of a unique story to how you and Mr. Gene became acquainted, and it all revolves around the, the Leonard Skinner Memorial or Monument, Historic Monument over in Gillsburg. Yes, it does. So um, just briefly, I can tell you, I was it was just sort of a, a, a coincidence that Gene happened to be there the day I was there. I had uh, wanted to come down and see the monument for a while. I had read about it online and I'm a huge Leonard Skinner fan, of course, and who isn't? And uh, so I got on a plane and I came down and I said, I'm just going to go. I really want to, I wanted some, I wanted to have, you know, a physical place that I could go and really just see what they had done. I couldn't, I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. So I literally just went for just a little visit and uh, it was Sunday afternoon. And they said, uh, the, the gentlemen that were there said, well, it's your lucky day. Gene Odom happens to be here. So, you know, I had just finished watching Gene's um, documentary on Amazon, and I was completely, you know, I really enjoyed that. Because I, I didn't know the story so as, until I, so it was really just so interesting to meet him at that time. I just kind of clicked and started chatting, and uh, Gene is just, you know, phenomenal talent. I mean, the movie the movie was just very heartwarming to me, too, so I got to see the kind of behind the scenes of what really happened that day, um, October 20th, 1977. And um, it's called, um, it's, it's re- as far as uh, Gene's story goes, I don't think you can get a more accurate account than, um, you know, Leonard Skinner and I'll Never Forget You. It's, it's really a beautiful story. I definitely, I definitely recommend um, your, your listeners to, to rent it and really just gives it a good insight into Gene and what, what took place in his life, along with, of course, um, you know, the entire, all, the, all the chain of events that took place that day. So it was a blessing. I really appreciated meeting Gene. Uh, I'll, to, to make the story shorter, uh, basically when I met him, I, I kept thinking, you know, this man needs to be heard. The stories are just unbelievable. So Gene and I were fortunate enough to record a podcast together in March uh, by the same name as the movie, um, I'll Never Forget You. And it's available on all different podcast um, forums. You know, you can go to iHeartRadio, Spotify, it's pretty much everywhere. And we had um, the first the first show was great because uh, I had a feeling Gene had a big audience, but I, we didn't realize it would be that big. 20,000 viewers clicked on Facebook Live, so that was really exciting. So, you know, Gene got to share a lot of intimate stories of having grown up with Ronnie Van Zandt. So, um, just an amazing speaker, an amazing person, and I, you know, I feel fortunate to have uh, met him. So, yeah, and, uh, and just to real quick, just to, um, I had met with some of the people at the at the uh, monument and I was chatting with one of them recently and just saying to him how amazingly grateful the fans are to now have this physical place they can go to and pay their respects to really what, probably the most popular band in history. You know, with, had they lasted longer, God only knows what they could have done. I mean, they, they, they already did so much in the time that they 
for recording. I mean, they, they really shot to the top of the charts and still wildly popular. So it's, um, people are really grateful to, especially to, uh, Dwayne and Lola, uh, easily because of course they've been so generous with their land. And, um, it's just a really, it's, it is a beautiful, beautiful monument. And I highly recommend again that people go and it's just a great way to spend your day. It's open 24 hours. I uh, will be greeted and people, people are really kind when you go. And it's just been, it, it was a great journey for me. Well, you know, when, we first got asked about doing this. Uh, Mr. Ricky Wascom called, and we had recorded a podcast with his son. And Mr. Ricky asked if we'd be interested in doing it. And I said, well, sure. You know, I mean, we grew up here. We knew, you know, thought we knew something about the site and, and really what all had gone on. But in the last couple of weeks from visiting with you, visiting with Mr. Gene, going with Mr. Ricky, and, and, you know, discussing everything with him, I've learned more in the last three weeks than I've new in my entire lifetime so mm-hmm. i mean it's wow. it's been a really neat journey just in this short period of time to really you know watching the documentaries watching y'all's podcast and trying to prep for our own and i'll say right. this i had the opportunity when i was at the monument when when i was first approached about it to actually be somebody that was there on the ground helping put everything together and i did not realize how many small or not small, but really unique features are there to represent different things that if you don't know they're there, you'll never notice them. Right. You know, the, oh, yeah, they paid attention to every little detail. It's just amazing. You know, the six steps that lead up, uh, you know, represent each one of the members that, you know, or each one of the people that passed in the in the accident. I mean, just that attention to detail, some of the, some of the fine detail in the artwork on the back of the on the etchings, it, it, there's some little secrets in there that you really have to look for, and I'm not going to give them away here on the site, on the show, but, you know, you really need to look and see if you can spot anything that's out of out of the norm. So, Wow. Well, you know, next time I go back, I'm definitely going to look deeper. Unfortunately, <laughs> the COVID-19 crisis has, uh, you know, held that up, but uh, the minute, well, the minute and- that... And, clear, it gets cleared, yeah. And since you say that, you know, when this was first, when we first got started on this, they had a a big celebration, a big, you know, get-together that was supposed to be in June. And I think now it's tentatively backed up to October, but that's still, you know, it could be changed. And I was asked not to, you know, give a date really because they're really not sure of a date just yet. But, you know, they do have some festivities that they're working on and trying to get them all put together. And yeah, exactly. And it's it's such a great it's such a, a great setting for that. I mean, just again now for people people all over the world have been going to the monument. I mean, they have people from Italy and people from New Zealand and England, and it's just amazing who turns up. And you know that really speaks to the popularity of of the group, but also just the deep meaning that Leonard Skinner has for people. I mean, it's just it's not a regular kind of uh, fan base. It's a very devoted fan base. And uh, and I'm sure I would love to see all those little cryptic things that they did because I know they they were very creative with the monument and it's 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 a sight to behold truly. So I mean, Gene can speak on it more than than I can because he was involved in it. But it's uh, it's amazing. And the website, just real quick, is is um, com. So that'll bring up the website and all different information online about it. Well, and it's also on Facebook, Leonard Skinner Monument. So you can go on there oh, yes, of course, and see yeah. different things that people are doing out there, whether they're leaving roses, whether they're leaving, you know, guns, bullets, um, you know, a beer. Uh, you know, uh, right. I was able to talk to several folks that said, you know, it's, it's not often or, or not uncommon to come out and there's a Budweiser sitting on, on you know, on the ground. Oh, is that right? Okay. That where, makes where somebody sense. has yeah. come out, they've brought one in memory, and then they drank one, you know, kind of to have a beer with them. So it's, you know, it's it does reach a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And I know growing up here, we all knew about it. I mean, I was born in 77, so, you know, it was just a few months after I was born that the, that the accident actually happened. So... We grew up the whole time knowing about Leonard Skinner, you know, Free Bird, Simple Man. I mean, that was that was the music we listened to and and grew up on, and we knew some of the story, but not not what I've learned now. And I know I'm still at the beginnings of it, and and hopefully Mr. Gene can can finish shedding some more light on a lot of these other things. Yeah. But Mr. Gene, I know, kind of starting this off now, you you were one of surviving members. You were. 
the bodyguard for and best friend for Ronnie Van Zant. Tell us some childhood stories. I, I know you're an avid outdoorsman, and I know you've got a, a slew of. And what did you tell us earlier? You were you were holding the record for the for the largest bass. It well not the largest bass, but lying about catching the largest bass. <laughs> True fisherman. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hold a world record for lying about uh, missing the biggest bass. You know, uh, 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 lying about the big one that got away. You know that story. You know, I hold a world record. Oh yeah, lying about the big one that got away. Yeah, no doubt about it. Caught a lot of big bass. I lost a lot of big bass. And uh, I've lost more bass as a, before I was 20 years old than most people will ever catch in a lifetime. When I was at Code 33, before we, before we got our ambassadors and stuff like that. But we used to bass fish as kids. We'd uh, throw that down John Boat in the back of a truck. Get somebody to take us down to McGirt's Creek and throw it down there and let it ride down the bank and jump in that thing. And we'd bass fish. We used old, uh, back, back then, uh, it was... Uh, Jim Bagley's old monster worms. Ronnie used the purple and I used the black. And he caught his almost 13-pounder on the purple Jim Bagley's old monster worm. And uh, I'm the one that rolled that big old bass over in the boat for him. And the best day in his life. But we, yeah. we, caught, we caught and missed millions of bass. Wow. And then y'all, Very cool. y'all grew up in the same neighborhood. You grew up together. Now... Did y'all know each other? When did y'all first meet? At what age? Um, uh, young young boys, kids, toddlers, you know, in the same neighborhood. And then uh, we, we moved up under the Matthews Bridge there for about a year and a half in the late 50s. And then we moved back to the west side and moved one street over from Mull Street to Pangola Drive. We moved uh, one block south of where we were when we grew up as little kids. And uh, little boys, I mean, elementary school right on up through, you know, uh, uh, junior high school. And, of course, he went to high school. I didn't get to high school. He was there briefly for He got his girlfriend pregnant and had to leave school and go to work, become a man at about 16 years old, become a daddy. And I <laughs> had to go to work at 16. That does happen sometimes. Yeah, that happens quite often, I imagine. Well, I'm More gonna, times than most folks don't brag about. I'm going to guess these young kids and as teenagers growing up, y'all got into a little bit of mischief. Um, You know, to be honest with you, I mean, we'll just run it down over here because it's 187 degrees out here. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, mischief, fights and stuff like that, you know, and uh, yeah, you know, being kids. You know, nothing, nothing serious. We were never um, locked up for nothing illegal, nothing like that. And Ronnie got locked up real early on for fighting. And uh, uh, he, he went to jail and spent a few hours in jail for that. But uh, nothing serious, you know, just fighting and junk like that. How how early did did he get involved in music? Like, when did that start? you know, playing a big role in his life. Early 60s, when he went to see the Rolling Stones, him and Bill Fairs and Jim Daniels went to, um, I, I didn't go to see the Rolling Stones. I was more Hank Williams, Lefty Frizzell kind of guy myself. But they went and then Ronnie came back and that was it. He started doing that Mick Jagger shuffle and he wanted to be a singer. And that. So that, that started it. So before that, did he really know he he had a a music talent, or did that no, did that just no, sparked no. it? For for that, he um he wanted to um um he he saw Cassius Clay boxing and he thought he was going to be a boxer and he started getting he got some gloves and started sparring around his backyard and he was going to be a boxer. To let to let Godwin boxed his ears for him, and that, that showed him <laughs> right quick, like he didn't. He changed his mind about being a boxer. Maybe and then he maybe go a different he, route. <laughs> watching Jim Brown and them football players, he he got to he got to Lee High School, 
and he was going to be a running back. He was going to be a superstar. He was going to be like Jim Brown. And he he made the team, and the first the first play from the first scrimmage game, he he got tackled running with the ball and broke his ankle all the hell and had to put pins in it, and that was it. Hmm. And it made him 4F. He couldn't be drafted with all them pins in his ankle. So... If I could jump in there for a minute, if you don't mind, I just was curious. Was that the reason that Ronnie had that trademark of going barefoot? I'd always read that 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 was what kind of it was more comfortable for him to be barefoot on stage, Gene, because of that injury. Uh, probably not. He just he just he he wanted something to make him outstanding uh, on stage, and he, he wanted to feel the stage when it burned. And that's. That's what he wanted. He wanted shoes. He wanted to feel the stage when it burned. That wow! Music. Mm-hmm. Well, then you can probably feel the stage better. You know, feel the vibrations off the instruments and everything else. Yeah, yeah. The until he steps on one of boys' hot cigarettes, and uh, <laughs> a couple Horrible. of them got slapped for that, so they quit dropping their cigarettes. They put them on the strings. They cut the strings off on the guitars, and they put the to stick the cigarette on the strings on the guitar so they wouldn't drop the cigarettes. They knew better than dropping the cigarette on Ronnie Van Zandt's stage. They'd get the ass with <laughs> You know, I've thought of a lot of things over the years, but I don't ever think I've thought about cutting a guitar, you know, cutting it a little long. That way you've got a a piece hanging off the end so you can stick, stick your smoke. <laughs> yeah, you can see a lot of their videos with Gary and Ellen, and especially Gary. Uh, he put his cigarette on the end of his guitar. Leon do the same thing. Huh. On his base, yeah. Wow, didn't know that. Now, mm-hmm. Mr. Gene, you said a minute ago that you know, due to Ronnie's accident on the football field, he wasn't able to be drafted. Now, you you were drafted. You were how many years did you serve? Uh, two years. I was drafted in 1969 and uh, served till May of 1971. And you were in country, out of country. Where were? Where I was over in, in Europe. I was sent. I didn't. I didn't go to Vietnam. They, for some reason, they didn't need the artillery man, and they sent me to Germany. And then, when I was checking in, the, the officers, OD, was early at one thirty in the morning over there. You know, and he says, "Oh, oh, you're in a battery." They like to get drunk and fight. I said, "Well, I don't drink, but I, I, I don't mind fighting." And he, and then he, he's flipping through my records, you know, and he goes, he said. I'll never forget this. He says, you're you're a 44C. I said, what's that? He said, you're secondary MOS. He said, you're a welder. I said, yeah, I'm a union iron worker. I'm a welder. He said, man, he said, our welder died yesterday. You're going to be the new welder. I said, well, hey, I might not want that job. (laughs) Yeah, how exactly did he go? He said, he OD'd on orange acid. And I said, well, I don't mess with no kind of drugs or whatever. So I became the battalion welder and went from E1 to E5 in about 14, 14 and a half months. And was offered staff charging E6 and $10,000 if I'd reenlist and be guaranteed I'd be a warrant officer in three years. And I said, no, man, I like to be free. I don't like to be tied down like this. I like to go fishing. I like to be, you know, whatever. Biggest mistake of my life was to get out of the army when I did. My second biggest mistake was going to work for the band because, <laughs> God dang it, I lost everything. Lost my retirement, lost everything working for him. But, you know, that's the way it goes. Well, when you came back, what what was Ronnie doing then? Um, well, he, like, he told me, he said, Maisie, come on, take care of us. He says, you're the only person that can straighten us up. He says, I'll make you rich. I said, man, I got a damn retirement. I said, I'll, I'll be able to retire. I ain't working in 20 years. And I said, you hippies break up all the time. He said, no, man. He said, I'm going to make you rich. He said, you take care of us and straighten us up. We'll make you rich. Didn't quite happen that way, you know. Mm. Well, but how, I'm still alive. I ain't complaining. How big a challenge Gina, was that? Yeah. Trying to. I was going to say, Gene is the ultimate survivor. Um, I'm not so sure I survived it because <laughs> it's been a rough trip. Yeah. But I'm not complaining. I mean, you know, nobody owes me nothing, and uh, I, I regret that he, he didn't make it. But uh, uh, it's uh, uh, things things happen for a reason, you know. Uh, that's what they say, and uh, I don't know. Well, I don't Gene, know the reasoning, but I ain't going to complain about it. I'm still here. Coming into that scene, you know, you you've come out of the military, and now you've been asked to come into a rock and roll band and straighten one up. 
how big of a challenge? How, how was how was that walking in and you know all of a sudden you're you're thrown from one complete, which I guess you know you know you, you used to order and structure going into something completely unstructured without order. Well, that's what he wanted. He wanted because he knew that he said you're the only person I'll never drink or do no drugs or nothing. He says, and you're the only person that these people will listen to, out of respect for me and you. And he says, um, you're the only one that can do it. And he said, I want you to come on in here. I want to take care of us. And of course, in '75, I got a little taste of that because he got his management was the same management for the Rolling Stones, and the Rolling Stones were having some trouble with some people and they needed a bodyguard they could trust so Ronnie said come on up to New York I got something for you and I went up there and I became a bodyguard for for the Rolling Stones in 75 for the tour of the Americas but it wasn't long down the road I had enough of that you know because I, you know of the, the, the party life and staying up all night sleeping half a day all day you know and, and uh, when we got to Jacksonville on that tour <laughs> I told him I said hey uh, Clayton was the road manager I said Clayton I said man look here I'm home I live here I said you people won't let me party all the time y'all up all the time and I said I have to get my eight nine hours sleep and I got a job to do I'll do it I said well I'm done but this I said uh, y'all can just travel on without me <laughs> and then uh well, they got me to be his bodyguard and take care of them and I was doing a good job straightening them up and they were real happy real happy Kicked the hell out of 97,000 people in California, and they come off the stage completely sober. And Ronnie looked at me and Alan and Gary. Ronnie walked up and grabbed me around the neck. He said, man, we just kicked the asses of 97,000 people sober, stone cold sober, first time in history. And they, he said, well, you're doing a great job. Just keep it up, you know. And uh, that, was, that was in July, you know, and everything went great like that until October. Well, but I we know, had big had big plans, big changes were coming if the plane hadn't crashed. Go ahead. I know in the documentary, you know, you had kind of you kind of told a little bit about how you kind of addressed certain situations when they came into a dressing room or came onto a set. You would, you know, they would have liquor and everything laid out for them, and you would kind of disperse that before the band came in. Yeah, when sound check when they had bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles of booze and everything and. Um, I, I left enough that the crew, crew could have a few drinks and the bank could have a few drinks. Several of them didn't like it. They thought I was babysitting and stuff on so on, but they didn't know what I was doing, you know, um, weaning them down, weaning them down, because that, once they got through the show, they could go to the bar and have a drink or whatever. And so that's why they were playing so good and doing so good is because when I was around there, the booze wasn't wasn't so available, you know. Instead of them having 10 gallons of booze there, they had a quart. You know, after a bunch of people drink that, then there's not a whole lot for one guy to, you know, to have his own bottle. You know, so they appreciated it. Ronnie appreciated it, and everything was going along good. They were doing good. They were doing great, you know. But well, things the, changed. The band had been in place, what, three, four years to where they were the, really had really taken off and really gone? Or, or how long was the band actually in place? Uh, well, the the band started in the late 60s you know in the middle ways of mid part 60s or 60s and then their their first album was good and the second album was better and then they had the hit record sweet old alabama and that pushed them over the top and um uh all of their <laughs> that band never wrote a bad song you hear all their songs played on the radio and you're lucky if you're a band to have one of your songs played on the radio but 40 some years after their death their songs are still played on the radio it's unbelievable Elvis Presley and the Beatles is the only ones, other ones that that happens to, you know. So, so that, that's a Ronnie'd be mighty happy, proud to know that his music's still being loved forty some years after his death. Well, and I'm I know from what I've read and what I've looked at, watched on on the different shows and stuff. You know, each song had something different behind it. You know, some different meaning, some some unique way that it came about. Yeah, but. Things happening in their life, you know. Um, um, Ronnie was a storyteller, a poet, you know. And Alan and Gary, you know, Steve Gaines, Ed King, you know, those were the music arrangers and the music makers. Bob Burns drums, you know, and um, early on Larry Johnstrom on bass, and then Leon. They they were just tremendous music makers. But Alan Collins was the man that put that sound. He arranged that sound to, to make that Leonard Skinner sound, and they've never achieved that since Alan passed away. 
Mm-hmm. And since Alan wasn't a part of that band anymore, they've never achieved uh, that kind of success or that kind of uh, songs that could be played on the radio. You know, without Alan Collins, that it's like a car with no motor. Mm. You could get four, five, six, seven guys push the car around up and down the street, but without that motor in it, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't mm-hmm. make it. You, you wasn't know, going so far. That's what Alan Collins was. Well, during during that that time and and the release of of all the songs we know now, what was the song? Do you think, in your your opinion, was Ronnie's favorite? Uh, was Ronnie's favorite? I would say, um, oh, Simple Man was one of his favorites, but that was hard to sing live because of the high notes. Um, Divided the Curtis Low, mm-hmm. you know, and because I know what that song was written about, and um, the people that he referenced in there, not by name, but by life. And one of them was me, where I picked up the Coke bottles. And uh, I, I know that story because he told me, he said, that's you walking through these ditches, picking up them Coke bottles. <laughs> and he said, I put that in there about you. So I know that little line was about Gene Odom. And then Claude Hamner, the guy that owned the Curtis Low store, was a white ball-headed guy that played the old flat top. And we went in there and played some old Hank. He picked, uh, played some music for us. But you couldn't reference a white ball-headed man in a in a black blues song. You know what I mean? You had to... You had to you had to reference a black guy, a white-headed black guy, and uh, and so there were different there were different different people referenced in that song that you would never know that you know mm-hmm. creative language. That song actually came out of childhood memories, things that went on. Yeah, oh yes, no doubt, no doubt about it. All of his all of his songs that he wrote is a references to things in his life, you know. And Tuesday's Gone, that's a beautiful slow ballad song and. When Bob Burns left in '75, and Ronnie wrote that song because Bob had had a uh, mental breakdown, nervous breakdown, and uh, Ronnie referenced Bob in that song and 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 a couple other things that was, you know, in uh, in which I don't need to be talking about, you know, women and divorces and stuff like that. But it, it, his life was referenced in every song he wrote, part of his life. Or uh, people around him's life. Hmm. Well, I guess I, I, you know, that kind of leads me back to you cleaning the band up or the band trying to clean up. I wonder, would that have had a different effect, maybe on the sound or the music that came out, the songs that came out? Certainly, certainly, yes, sir. That's when Steve Gaines came in on that on that last album. And he come in there, and he was everything in one package. He was Ed King, Alan Collins, Ronnie Van Zandt, and a whole bunch in one. Actually, in the studio doing the album, I was just twirling my fingers up there. And I told him, I said, hey, man, I'm going to go home. I said, I'm not doing anything up here. We're just hanging out. He said, well, you know, go to the house and fill up all them potholes there around my driveway and everything and just, just do fiddle around. And so uh, as I was walking out, Steve Gaines was doing a solo inside the, uh, inside the, uh, behind the glass. Alan and Gary were sitting on the couch. As I'm walking by, I pointed at Steve Gaines and I said, that boy right there is going to teach y'all something. And I ain't going to tell you which one it was, but I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I said, listen, that boy right there is going to make y'all tighten up. Sure enough, Steve Gaines was the one to make them tighten up. And uh, the the album showed it. That album showed his talent. And, which which and, album? Which album was that? Street Survivors. Hmm. Yeah, the, the final album. The yeah. final album. Yeah. And and Ronnie said that frequently too. He called him the old Oki, right? And he said he's gonna he's the one you got to watch out for because he was just an unbelievable talent. Yeah, and he told me so that Steve Gaines. When we were talking, he said Steve Gaines is the best thing to ever happen to this band. I knew it because he had the kind of talent and everything that could work with Ronnie. And uh, they would jive together. And Steve could sing. He could be a front man. And then when he sang his song live on stage, uh, Ain't No Good Life, Ronnie gave him the microphone. And Ronnie, Ronnie walked behind the PA and gave Steve the stage. And no other singer would do that. But Ronnie Van Zandt gave Steve, Steve Gaines the stage when he sang his song. <laughs> Got a great reaction. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's not something you hear of very often is the, you know, the lead singer stepping out for a second to let let somebody else have the spotlight because you, I guess you're always, no, always Ronnie concerned. knew what he had. Ronnie knew what he had there, buddy. You know, I guess most <laughs> most singers are, you know, concerned that you know they they share the spotlight. All of a sudden, they're not in the spotlight. Yeah, they they uh, bingo. That's what thirty eight special when Don Barnes sang "Hold On Loosely," and he became the front man and re- delegated Donnie to singing backup. Mm. That's what. That's what happens when you uh, when you have a superstar in the band and you put him out front. What what but, do you think would have would have evolved with Steve in the band? You know, if if things could have, would have carried on. If things carried on, they'd have, they'd have done another record relatively fast after Street Survivors because of the success that they were having, and then with that kind of success. Uh, Ronnie always wanted to try to write a, do a little country album. Him and Steve Gaines could have done a, a, a country thing, but Ronnie Van Zandt would have never gave up his uh, his job or his band and his music, never with the kind of success he had. But he would have made so much success he could have done like Stones, just travel every couple of years, you know, and then do his own thing, and then put the put the Skinner band back together again for stadium shows and big stuff like that, you know. So. It would have been something special, but he ran into Gene Odom Luck. <laughs> now, apparently, he ran into Gene Odom Luck at an early age too. So, I mean, if if y'all were running that tight from from young young boys, I mean, he he knew what he had. So he knew on the street survivors. He knew he knew what Steve Gaines done and made the change of that sound of that band and with his talent. With his singing ability and with his writing ability and with his guitar playing, he was. He actually told me, he said, "You know, I got stuff I want to do. If I ever, if I ever leave this band, I'm taking Steve, Leon, and Alan with me. That's the names he used. Hmm. And he never ever intended to leave the band or do that, but he said because he knew what kind of talent Steve Gaines had, you know." And uh, he, expe- he he expected, you know. Well, I ain't gonna say that, you know. But uh, that's why that's why he told me. Well, you know, Mr. Gene, growing, growing. He, growin he, he didn't never he didn't ever gave up the success he'd have with the Leonard Skinner band as long as he could have kept that band mm-hmm. together. You know, he'd have done other things, especially with Steve Gaines. And Steve would have done other things also, because when Steve would have had the success he'd have had on the next record, he could call his own shots. He could have done his own Steve Gaines album, you know, but he was the kind of person that if he did something like that, they'd come right back to that Leonard Skinner thing. Because the Leonard Skinner thing at that time was, they were called the American Beatles. And they were, like, stadiums would be no problem to fill up. Oh, here's one for you. Um, at that, in 77, the Rolling Stones helped. The Madison Square Garden record for five consecutive nights sold out. On the fall tour for the Leonard Skinner Band, the Leonard Skinner Band had Madison Square Garden sold for seven consecutive nights. So Skinner would have beat the Rolling Stones record if the plane hadn't crashed. Mm. Wow. Oh, yeah. They'd have been the biggest band in the world if the plane hadn't crashed. And with that kind of success, you can do anything you want. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and they traveled not just U.S., they traveled worldwide, went all over, you know, got to see and do things that, you know, most folks don't, and 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 they got to live the rock and roll life. I mean, they were... Oh, yeah, no doubt. They were having a big time everywhere they went. Oh, yeah, they were they were sold out everywhere. Everything was sold out everywhere they went with sellouts. It would have been even massive, more, more massive if the plane had a crash. Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. Gene, you referenced a minute ago that, you know, had they been able to continue, they would have, you know, Ronnie would have probably wanted to kind of go into a country, you know, a little more. But, you know, us growing up, Leonard Skinner was country and rock both to us growing up, I guess, you know. Uh, if you like country, you like Skinner. I mean, that's yeah, just, <laughs> I mean, that just kind of the way it was. But I yeah. know he had a huge influence in several, you know, different artists that are, are still – some of the biggest country music artists today 
you know. Yeah, he he uh, he wanted to sit down with Merle Haggard and write some songs, but never got the chance to do that, of course. But that would have happened because of the success that Ronnie had, and the, when when you got that when you got that kind of success, um, anybody that's successful or looking for more success wants to be a part of it. If if you want to be a part of it, and since Ronnie was such a great songwriter. Merle, they, it would have happened. They would have got together. Well, now he was a big influence with Charlie Daniels. Wasn't, weren't they good friends? Weren't y'all good friends? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Ronnie Van Zandt got Charlie Daniels' record deal, helped Charlie get his record deal. And Ronnie got the Outlaws band the record deal. And then when Ronnie met with the uh, record label, with Henry Paul and the band, the record label signed the Outlaws. And they wrote Ronnie Van Zandt a $25,000 finder's fee check because they were so happy to for Ronnie give them the outlaws. Ronnie t- turned the check over, signed the back of the check, and gave it to the outlaw band and said, buy yourself a truck. Your truck's off, you shit. And <laughs> give, give them the check, you know, sign the check. That's the kind of guy he was. And back then, $25,000 would buy you a pretty good truck. Yeah, my God, man, back then, it'd buy you a, buy you a semi. Uh, that's you know? a cat's meow back back in the day with 25Gs walking around. Yeah. No doubt about it. There's a lot of money back then. Mr. Gene, talking about the documentary that's on Amazon, um, The Last 72 Hours of Leonard Skinner, what, yeah. what made you want to – share your experience with the band and, and your knowledge of them and, and the parts you play. What made you want to, you know, ex- share that experience well, in, in a film? part of it is a, a lot of people not knowing what really happened, not knowing the truth. And then a, a band member or an ex-band member um, just telling lie after lie after lie after lie and uh, people not knowing the truth. And uh, I decided that I wanted to tell my side of the, just the story to a certain point because – there wasn't no big budget to, to really do a big special thing, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I just wanted to make myself feel better and by uh, and just saying what I could say, tell people about the truth, and to, to do something special, you know. It's not it's not like your everyday documentary or your or your rock and roll movie or nothing like that. It's just a a special type thing that we put together. Well, I know me personally, I learned a good bit about what went on, you know, prior to and and during that from watching it. And I hope everybody that's listening to this will take time to go and watch it. It's, you know, if, you, if you're if you a Skinner fan, it's it sheds some light on a lot of details that, you know, you may or may not know or have questions on. Yeah, certainly. Tell them to go to, to I'll never forget you, the last 72 hours of Leonard Skinner. They'll learn a lot. And it, it's good. You know, it's it's not their, it's not just extra rock and roll type stuff. You know what I mean? It's not, it's it's good stuff. And that's available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So Amazon, yeah, that's what that's, yeah, Amazon. And I'm sure there's a couple other places you can buy, but I'm not a computer person. Well, get, the good news is that they'll give it to you, I think, for 40, 48 hours. So I, I rewatched it several times because I, there was things I missed and went back. And I, this is, I mean, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Good. I did the same. Especially since we were going to be doing the interview, I was like, "Okay, hold on, let me let me tie that together. Let me come back to this part and see if I missed something." And you know, there were a lot of, you know, kind of things that were pointed out in there, and there were a lot of, you know, questions that you answered, and and some that you left, you know, kind of still open. That yeah, you know, if you watch it, you you kind of want to see more. And I know yeah, you have, um, you have a book I don't want to go and, too deep into too too deep into some things, you know, because it gets it gets kind of personal. And uh, uh, um, other people, you know, I was the only person on that plane that wasn't had been drinking or doing drugs or whatever or hallucinating and all the other stuff. So, some of the people's stories are so far fetched; it's uh, it's worse than a worse than a, a horror movie, a low budget horror movie. That you know, and um, I just wanted to put my 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 two cents kind of like in and in and, and let people know that um about what how it went down and you know and uh i wrote the song that uh is in it even though the two bastards stole my music from me and published it behind my back i wrote that song and they put the music to it all them lyrics and stuff i wrote them lyrics 
Bulldog, okay. Mississippi Night, you know, and um, I'm sure that a lot of people on the internet jumped all over those people, but uh, that's okay too. <laughs> well, Mr. Gene, I know that you have, I know you have one book out. Do you have more than one book? Uh, well, I have this, the first book that I published myself in 83. That's the one that we based the movie on because I own the rights to the title and I own, own the rights to my book and my story in there. And my second book is called uh, Leonard Skinner's Remembering the Free Birds of Southern Rock. Random House published that one. And you can buy that on Amazon. And I think you can download it now. You can, you can, you can Kindle. Kindle, Kindle, yeah. Kindle thing. Uh, I got a two hundred seventy something dollar check here a while back, and uh, so it's still selling. You know, I mean, I, and I could really use two hundred seventy something dollars. When I got the check, I went, "Look at this, good God! I'm going out juking tonight." <laughs> big, big money to me is a couple hundred bucks. I mean, that's big money. <laughs> Well, you know, now kind of follow along with that, Mr. Gene, you know, back when you first started with the band, Ronnie said he was going to make you rich. What was a paycheck back then? Kind of, if you don't mind telling us, you know, what was what was a good paycheck? Well, I'll tell you, I can tell you what mine was because the management, Ronnie told me, he said, man, they don't want you around. They don't, they don't, they're afraid of you. They don't want you around. I said, well, that's all right. No problem. He said, but they're not wanting to pay you anything. I said, well, I ain't going to work for you. I said, I make $750 a week as an iron worker. That's not with any overtime. And I said, I ain't going to work for you and nobody else for less money than that. I mean, I love you, but I said, I have to, I have to, I got a family to take care of. I got a wife and two kids, you know, and he, and he said, well, man, he said, they don't want to pay you nothing. I said, well, I ain't, but then get you somebody else to go out. I ain't going out there for nothing. And so, um, I can't remember. He says, the, the, the corporation's going to pay you X amount of dollars. I can't remember now. And he says, uh, we, we got, we got, uh, we would get $20 a day per diem, which was $140 a week. He says, take the check and I'm going to pay you my per diem and your per diem. And you put that 280, 100, 140, 140, 140. 20, 40, 60, 81, 20, $280. Put that towards your check and that'll make you $750. And he says, you don't buy nothing. I buy everything. You're, what they call, he said, you're, you're, um, all expense paid. He said, you, you bring me a receipt. Every, every time you spend or whatever, you bring me the receipt and I'll pay you back. He said, because it's that way, you'll make you $750 a week. So I made $750 a week uh, working for Ronnie. Mm-hmm. With the Rolling Stones, I made that much money an hour. <laughs> wow. That's the difference. Really? <laughs> I was about to for say the, seven. Now that's for the hours I worked. Yeah. With the Rolling Stones, yeah. I was about to say uh, yeah, 750 bucks back in back in the 70s was that's good money. That's not a bad paycheck. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, union hour worker back back then I was it was 15 18 dollars an hour, you know. And uh, so that was, and you know, you you could uh, two or three, four hours a week overtime, but no problem because I was a welder. A lot of times welding, you just couldn't stop right then what you were doing. So a few hours overtime, but no problem. But I mean, I I told him I said, shit, I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm not going to quit my job and lose money, you know. And uh, I, I paid into my retirement. You know, part of that hourly wage went into my retirement and health and welfare too. You know, so. Uh, he said, I will, I, will, I will pay you by check, and then I'll pay you in cash. That way, everything's good. And he says, uh, it's going to be all right. It's going to be fine. No problem. Everything's good. Well, and if they're if they're packing out stadiums 90-something thousand all over the country, all over the world, they're they're making a pretty good jingle. Well, they were making pretty good money back then. Nowadays, these bands nowadays make so much more money than the back then. Of course, the money was different. You know, mm-hmm. money was smaller, and you know, their their guarantee wasn't near what it is today. You know, but um, if if the plane hadn't crashed in the next couple of years, they'd have been they'd have been up there with the big boys. They they've been doing fantastic. So would have I. But that you know the luck. 
Well, yeah. Miss Jean. My luck, my luck runs out just before I wake up every morning. <laughs> <laughs> so in your okay, dreams, it's positive it's, thinking, Jean. In your dreams, yeah. it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Hmm. Well, Miss Jean, kind of rolling forward a little bit, uh, your part in the monument. Uh, what all did you uh, – I know you brought a lot to the table being involved in it, and that's – you know, you coming from Florida, Miss Patricia's coming from New York. The odd stance that y'all meet at the right time, because I'm don't tell sure everybody that, Don't tell everybody that she's from New York. It's <laughs> <laughs> really my reputation. We're not, we're not allowed to let everybody know she's a snowbird. <laughs> yeah, I got called a damn Yankee a couple of times. But <laughs> I think we heard it a couple times on this earlier. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, they come, you know, they, they, years and years and years ago, they come down to Florida, down there, and they won't leave, and they come down. But I'm telling you how it is: is them damn Yankees come down to Florida, you couldn't run them off. <laughs> I won't expect a welcome wagon, I guess, when I go. <laughs> yeah. I would just be the looking county, for the, the mall. The county oh. I live in is probably ninety. 95, 98% Yankees and Snowbirds. Believe it or not, Citrus County, there ain't but a few handful of us rednecks left down there. Most of that, 95, 98% of that county is Snowbirds and Yankees. Yeah, it's, it really is true. I mean, even the New Yorkers know it. But I'll tell you what, I grew up in Westchester County, New York, and I will tell you this, Skinner was the biggest band going. So oh, Southern, you know, it always was. They were, and then when I went with them, in late 76, I was laid off. And he says, come on, man, we've got about a week shows. Come on. I went on the road with them, and we were up in Massachusetts, up, up north, doing. Uh, they had several shows to do. And I was watching people standing in knee-deep snow 20 miles away asking, begging for tickets to Leonard Skinner Band. And I'm standing on that bus. I'm thinking, what? 20 miles down the road standing in snow, waist-deep, knee-deep snow, I said, man, these guys are bigger than I thought they were, that yeah, I knew they were, you know. Got to the show, and I seen, I, I seen, wow, we, you know, these these guys are bigger than I thought, you know. Mm-hmm. They were, and the 76 and 77 was where they were skyrocketed right on up to the top, past the top. Mm-hmm. Oh, Kicked yeah. everybody's ass they played with. They played with on a Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings at the Tulsa picnic. Willie Nelson, Willie Nelson's farm aid, and... July the second, ninety five, ninety seven thousand people, and then when Skinner wasn't contracted to play, they didn't want him to play Freebird encore. So Skinner played their set, left the stage, and they were in limousines. I had them gone to the hotel, and I was waiting for a limousine to come back. And the ninety seven thousand people just went crazy, stomping their feet, hollering for Freebird, hollering for Skinner to come back. You know. And they just rushed the stage, tore all the PA down, all the monitors down, run security off and everything, tear the stage down. Mm. People, were running, people were running with their damn legs between their legs. I walked out on stage and grabbed the microphone. And I said, hey, I said, my name is Gene Odom. I'm security for the Leonard Skinner Band and Ronnie Van Zandt. I said, they wasn't contracted to do no encore. They're back at the hotels. And I appreciate if you folks would back up and let these people put this stage back together. Y'all got a show. Willie Nelson and Willie and Jennings is coming out. They got a show to do. If y'all would please back up and put the, the crowd all backed up. Everybody backed up, you know. And they let the they let the security guys come back. They put the monitors back on the stage and everything. And when Willie Nelson and Willie and Jennings came out, first thing they said was Willie Nelson went, "Damn, that's a hard act to follow." And the crowd went crazy again. Oh yeah. And Gene Odom by himself backed up that hundred thousand people. And had them, you know, back up because Skinner was already gone. They they believed me, you know, and then they, uh, that makes you proud that you could do something like that. And you say, hey, you know, I'm 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 nobody, but I'm I'm just telling you that the band's gone. Mm-hmm. Did this, and then we left there and went back to California, and they were co-headlining two shows with Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton just came out with his Frampton Comes Alive record, sold ten or twelve, fifteen, eighteen million records, whatever it was. And so uh, Skinner, Peter Frampton opened the day before, but that show, uh, Peter Fr- Skinner was opening the show and Frampton was headlining it. Skinner finished the show, did the Freebird on court, and boom, they were off the stage. They were gone. And so I looked out in the crowd. I'm waiting on a limousine to come back. And 
50,000 people walking out of the stadium. And the word got back to Peter Frampton. And everybody's walking out. Peter Frampton runs out on the stage, grabs a microphone. Please come back. Please, I'm, I'm Peter Frampton. I'm the headliner. Well, the show the show hasn't started. Come back, come back. The crowd just kept on walking toward the door. <laughs> Peter Frampton wow. started crying. Peter Frampton started crying. Said, I'm, the, I'm Peter Frampton. I'm the headliner. He turned around and punched his road manager, kicked over his drum set. And I figured, well, I better turn around here and get between this between them and this pole so they don't see me and wait on that limousine to come back. So as soon as the limousine got back, I was gone. But, yeah, <laughs> Skinner kicked everybody's butt. <laughs> no doubt about it. Showed out. <laughs> All right, Mr. Gene, we enjoyed the visit. And I think we're going to we, go in, we're going to bring you back, and we're going to go into the last 72 hours of Leonard Skinner on our next episode, and we'll we'll run that down with you. And uh, and everybody, y'all, y'all are not going to want to miss that one. I will also, don't let me don't let me get by without telling the story about Ronnie catching that 13-pound bass, 12 pounds, 8 ounces. We'll, we'll start off with that to, one. Tell that story. A, a great how starting he, how point. He that. All right, guys, we appreciate it. We hope all of you enjoyed this episode of Outdoor Country Talk. God bless. <laughs>